Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 95 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 95, as we are approaching slowly, very, very too slowly, but still surely towards the international meets, uh, the uh, first in-person and then following, I think, a week or two after that, the uh, virtual internationals meets, uh, we are, of course, extremely excited for those meets to take place. But we figured uh, in light of Reagan's uh, sheet tool that he just published, I think earlier today, or maybe it was late yesterday, uh, we thought it would be a great idea to talk about uh, the what makes for good or perhaps even less good quizzing tooling. And so that tooling is a very broad category. So what did Reagan do? Reagan's a smart guy. I actually, you know, in, in total honesty, I haven't actually used Reagan's uh, sheet tool yet. I am sure, you know, given that Reagan is Reagan, it is totally awesome because uh, Reagan's a, a smart guy and all that. Um, but, uh, that sort of inspired this idea of like, well, that's a type of tooling, a particular type of tool that happens to be fully electronic, but quizzing has a lot of tools and tooling that we have access to everything from, I mean, some of the more modern stuff on the software solution sort of side of the fence, but really this goes way back in time. Uh, it, it crosses the barrier into electronic equipment like benches and seats and so forth. And it goes way back to even before equipment like that existed, which I know seems insane, but there was in fact a time in quizzing where we didn't have uh, jump lights. And in fact, uh, to win a question, you had to rise to what was called full stature. And there was this thing called a jump judge who all they did was just watch who got to full stature first. And full stature means you're, you're like standing completely upright. Uh, whoever got to that state first won the jump. And of course, it was highly subjective. Um, you know, you try to do the best you can, but it's really hard to see all 12 people and compare, especially people on the edges, uh, uh, as effectively as you might like. But those di days did exist. Uh, and in those days, there were, you know, printed score sheets. There were, and like we use today, uh, although a little bit different, uh, there were concordances that were printed. There were reference materials that were printed. And so all of those are sort of those are tools of quizzing. Uh, there's also tools like uh, the memorization booklets or the study booklets uh, that quizzers use. That's a, that's a tool uh, related to quizzing. So we wanted to kind of talk through this idea of what makes for good tools, what makes for not so great tools, and why. So that's a pretty broad category, but um, Scott, do you have any sort of like first thoughts or areas you want to dive in? Tools and why. I mean, we're just really commenting on the past and current and perhaps future state of tools and try to talk about principles that could be improved upon, right? Yeah, generally. And it may be helpful if we start with like quizzer tools because there aren't that many quizzer tools right now. I think there could be. So if anybody's looking for like, you know, a project to start on, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. A lot of tooling has been around administration. Uh, scoring stats, uh, you know, CBQZ with with question writing and editing and, and presentation in a quiz and that sort of stuff. But we haven't done a lot in terms of tooling for quizzers. There are the quiz study booklets, which are, you know, useful, um, assuming that they are accurate, which is uh, an assumption that was not entirely 
correct this past season, but hopefully we'll be in, in seasons going forward. Uh, but uh, maybe there's other tools that, that quizzers use. Maybe start from there and then we can branch outward. Yeah. So for tools that quizzers use, should we first start with the standard printed materials? Yeah, let's like the Wayback Time Machine, start with the basic stuff and kind of go outward. Well, I mean, I can only go back so far because the uh, reference material existed when I started quizzing. That's true. Um, did you, you, did, you had study booklets too, didn't you? Yep, and study booklets and mm-hmm. concordances and things. So it was already in the time of Griffin's materials. That's true. Well, and before I got there, there were concordances and reference materials. They were different. Um, they were more expensive, meaning that they actually cost money versus being free. Um, there were printed booklets, uh, which uh, along the same, I think pretty close to identical to what we use today. I mean, maybe slightly different, a slightly different manufacturing style or something like that, but fairly similar. Um, a lot of the tooling for quizzers beyond that, and actually before I, I move to, to talk about stuff beyond that, I mean, what makes good uh, quizzing tooling and what makes poor quizzing tooling? Well, I think quizzing tooling, number one, needs to be durable and simple. Uh, so the, the quiz booklets are great because they're fairly simple. They're not super durable, but they're durable enough to last for a season. And of course, by the end of the season, you know, the quiz booklets are, are starting to fall apart, but that's okay. They last a season. That's good enough. Uh, you can, they're easily usable. You you know, they don't run out of batteries or anything like that. You, you can mark them up. Up, you can highlight things. Uh, they're physical, and I think there's something useful when you're memorizing to have something physical in your hand that you can, you know, it's just, it's yet another data entry point, right? So, you know, if you, if you see the material, if you listen to the material, if you speak the material, each of those different ways helps you uh, gain mastery of the material. If you have the material in a printed form that's physical that you can carry around with you and something that's convenient, like a small uh, memorization booklet or study booklet, that that's just another sort of you know, it's not required, but it's just another sort of positive added tool that you can use, right? But beyond that stuff, and of course, you know, what makes that stuff good? Durable, simple, easy to transport. But I think above everything else, it needs to be accurate. Uh, And we had a little bit of a problem with the study booklets this season where there was a verse that was uh, in there that was uh, not accurate to the material. And so it came up uh, kind of uh, unexpectedly right before a meet that, oh yeah, a uh, verse, I forget what it was, some verse in some chapter was uh, completely not correct at all. And some quizzers had unfortunately memorized purely from the booklet, assuming that the booklet was accurate, which is a reasonable assumption to make. Uh, but it turns out, no, that particular verse was was inaccurate uh, in the material. So that's a little bit that that's definitely a poor example of of tooling for quizzers. Um, but beyond that, I think quizzers are, especially at the upper levels, tend to supplement their tooling. They create their own tooling, and this is where you know list making comes into play. Where you know uh, making your own lists or adopting somebody else's list and studying them enough that and 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 altering them. Uh, coming up with uh, analyzing the material and coming up with metrics for that uh, the the study of that material, all of those sorts of tools are are uh, can be very useful. Uh, coming up with study calendars, Seinfeld calendars, anything like that can be um, pretty useful. But uh, I mean, Scott, you were a list guy, right? Yeah, and I think one principle that is very useful is if whatever 
um, piece of material is being produced, if it can be changed easily, is great. Now, what I'm talking about specifically is lists like you would put out of a co- like a concordance or a unique word list or a two-word unique phrase list, things that are um, 100% objective, right? Right. There is no, there's no gray area in how a concordance should be. But if those materials are presented in not like a PDF, but in some sort of other text document where maybe someone only cares about the unique words that start with the letters in the first half of the alphabet, or maybe they only care about the unique words that are at least eight characters long. You you can never really know as a material producer what someone is specifically going to care about, and it is a waste of your time to try to guess all of those things. But if you provide it in in a format that someone can pretty easily manipulate to their own needs, um, I think that's one really, really good principle. Because I know um, you would produce a list of the material in um, like each verse um, on its own row. And so that was pretty easy to put into something like Microsoft Excel or any sort of spreadsheet. And then you could sort it alphabetically and boom, you've got your finished question study list um, in you know less than half an hour of work. So um, I think manipulatability, that's not... That can't be a word, right? Yeah, Um, that's a word. Manipulatability. I think that is a key one. So if you're ever making materials, um, try to make it easily changeable for the user. Now, I definitely made a lot of my own materials. So I I rewrote the entire material by hand because the act of writing it by hand was a form of study. I didn't do anything special with... Um, what it was written in because I liked to always study from a single source material because the location on the page was part of my recall and my rewriting of it changed the location on the page. I also cut three by five note cards into six equal pieces and then on each one wrote a global unique word with the reference on the other side. And so I could just shake a box and then um, put them in a box and shake it and then just pick them out and I really only wanted to test myself word to reference and not the reverse because there could be multiple unique words in a single reference. Um, And so I would just, if some of the cards came out of the box reference up, I just kind of put them to the side or put them back in the box. So I just, whenever I grab stuff, however, if it came word side up, I would test myself and try to get the reference. So that was unique word testing. I also wrote my own questions and did lots and lots of analysis on that. Um, stuff like, well, you don't want to jump on a W, that's obvious, but you actually don't want to jump on a TH, and in, especially the narratives, but pretty much any material, you don't want to jump on a J either, because it's about a 90% chance it's Jesus as a word, or a word like just, you're going to get stuck with just as. So I also looked into, um, alphabetically, what are the shapes that you really want to jump on and don't want to jump on, um, in it, that aren't W's. What else did I make? I would also record myself um, saying the material so that I could listen listen to it back. Now, I guess I am kind of old because I would record it onto a cassette tape, so per, even before CD. But um, a main there were kind of two reasons that I did that. One is it was a form of study for me to record it. It's actually pretty difficult to um, – record yourself word perfectly, even if you're reading the material. And so that was another way of forcing myself to know that I was, um, that I knew the material word perfectly. And I also 
recorded myself speaking very quickly so that I could listen to it back very quickly. Well, now we live in a day and age when you can just speed anything up. So that was actually, um, that is unnecessary now. (laughs) Um, But that was definitely something that I would do so that I could listen to it back um, very quickly and listen to a lot of material in a short span of time. I I bet you I could listen to the material in half the time um, the standard recording on a CD would take. So a lot of that is writing my own stuff, but then I also took existing materials and kind of adapted it to the way that I wanted to study for it. I did do some work with flashcards, and there are tons of random flashcards software online because flashcards studying for any kind of a test is usually um, a useful endeavor. So I definitely looked at some of those, but it's, it's fairly cumbersome to copy and paste verses or questions into um, individual note cards online. And then I never had any sort of ask yourself a question software. I know that I know that there was a quizzer who wrote his own because um, he was studying computer science um, and it would slowly reveal the beginning of a verse and he'd hit the space bar whenever he wanted it to stop revealing itself and then test his knowledge that way. And so I believe some of Acme's software is kind of like that. And I know that quizzers have asked CBQZ to be extended into kind of a either a note-taking area slash test yourself. Um, I think that's a really hard problem for software to solve because specifically how someone will want to be tested is going to matter a lot. And also the underlying question set is going to matter a lot too. So um, part of... Like, I always considered my underlying question set to be part of my competitive advantage because I worked really hard to have it be very large and comprehensive, but also high quality. Um, and because s- I think that it approximated what I was going to face um, best. And so I, I cared a lot about, you know, when I go to meets, like, what kinds of questions are being asked? Are there any structures that are differing from mine? Um, you know, do people start interrogatives with which more often than I do? Are there a lot of interrogatives where you basically just split two potential multiple answers and include one of them in the question so that it becomes an interrogative? You know, I tried to keep track of that stuff in general to make sure that my underlying question set was as close to what would be asked of me as possible. And so that's a problem, right, if you're a software maker because you're either going to have to do all of that work or allow people to upload their own and a lot of that is complicated. So I think I've hit a lot of what I use for quizzing and what I recall over the last kind of decade quizzers wanting or hearing that they were using for study. Yeah. And I mean, and the tooling is non-static, right? So, you know, we talked about, you know, in the way back years, uh, printed concordances and reference materials, right? So if you imagine, you know, Quizmaster is sitting there and, you know, this is before laptops existed, right? I mean, quizzing has happened, been happening since the 80s. So, I mean, laptops were not exactly ubiquitous. They certainly weren't easy to set up. Uh, And of course, then loading reference materials into the laptop was was not exactly trivial, you know, in the in, say, the 80s. So you you imagine uh, that quiz masters would have these giant binders that were, you know, printed concordances. So you'd have 
pretty much every word, uh, maybe the, an A or a the was, was left out or something, but uh, pretty much every word was, was printed along with every reference of where it was along with the, the content of those verses. And so if a quiz master wanted to figure out, well, is the quizzer out of context or you know, is the quizzer you know, quoting some word or phrase that I think exists somewhere else, they would flip open this concordance and start sifting through. And I, I, it's, it, it was sort of the, I don't know, you, you get into a quiz meet and, or a specific quiz and you feel a rhythm of a room. You kind of feel certain sounds that happen from the officials table and, you know, in the room and kind of the chatter of the room between questions and so forth, which is why, you know, as an aside, going from in-person meets to the first couple of uh, virtual quiz meets, it was really jarring and extremely weird because, you know, you somebody would get a question correct and you would expect the room to start applauding and and it wasn't there, right? And so, you know, for the first few meets, there was this weird, like, I don't know how to describe it. I felt uncomfortable. I felt like something is wrong, you know, and maybe something was wrong. You know, the, the cheering that was normally there was absent. Um, but there, there are certain sort of sounds of the room. And, you know, way back when, you know, early 90s, uh, mid 90s even, I forget when we switched away from the printed concordances, but uh, there was this moment uh, in it, it, not every question, but a lot of questions, probably a good... Well, at the at the district meets, probably about twenty percent of the questions. But at at upper level meets, Great West, and at, at especially at internationals, you could have seventy five, eighty percent of the questions where somebody would finish speaking, and the quiz master would start, f or or the answer judge really would be flipping through this giant binder. Uh, concordance, like looking up different things to make sure that the quizzer hadn't strayed out of context or to check where they were within a particular context or something like that. All of that is deprecated now, right? Like uh, with CBQZ, uh, with the material search tool, like you just start typing things and I can know exactly where a quizzer is before they finish, you know, even saying a couple of words after the first word or two that I've, I've typed in kind of stuff. So it's, it's very, very rapid and I can check where they are in, in, in terms of context in real time, right? Uh, or very, very near real time. And certainly an answer judge can do that even faster because uh, they don't necessarily have to pay attention 100%. They can actually be like, wait a minute, let me check that and start typing away while the quizmaster is still uh, engage with the quizzer and prompting them if, if, if called upon and that kind of stuff. But so concordances effectively don't exist anymore because for a couple of reasons, I mean, they were always fairly cumbersome because you're talking about an entire book or several books of the Bible that are printed out in a concordance form. So you're talking about like a couple of reams of paper, uh, you know, per concordance. This was a lot of, you know, printed sheets. It was cumbersome to use, cumbersome to flip through, uh, but it was better than really any other tool we had reasonably available at the time. And then of course, technology has progressed and now the concordance in physical form has been deprecated. I have a feeling that reference materials are very close to being deprecated at this point. Um, you know, in terms of the reference lookup tool with, uh, within CBQC or just even pulling up a PDF of the, you know, color-coded reference materials, it basically makes printed reference materials obsolete. And, and kind of going back to your point, Scott, about changeability, if you have a concordance or a reference material that's printed and it turns out there is an error, now, of course, there really shouldn't be because, 
you know, this material, I mean, it's objective, right? Like once you get the, the algorithm down for, you know, making the concordance and reference materials and you get the algorithm correct, there, there shouldn't be any errors uh, ever, right? I mean, it, it is a, it is a, it's an objective piece of, of, of output. Uh, but uh, if there is any sort of editing that you need to do for whatever reason, uh, in electronic form, you can easily do that. Whereas a printed form, you then have to reprint potentially a gob of, of stuff. And so I see, you know, reference materials very quickly kind of moving away from something that we have. Now, score sheets is another thing that's interesting. Score sheets have been around forever and they haven't changed tremendously. I mean, in the way back old days, they were, you know, an eight and a half by 11 sheet that was printed uh, portrait style, not landscape. Uh, and they, they quickly switched to landscape. I want to say... Uh, even by 92 or 93, maybe even 91 that they were landscape. But I mean, they, they fairly early on, they, they were, they were landscape styled and that particular style actually hasn't changed that much from, from, I mean, maybe a, a few little, you know, things, uh, you know, uh, reference material at the bottom or not reference material, uh, uh, key codes, legends that a certain legends added to the bottom or that kind of thing. But otherwise they haven't really substantially changed in that time. You print them out, you mark them up, uh, in a particular way, you send them off to the statistician and, and that's about it. I have a feeling that score sheets are sort of the next big candidate to get deprecated in the sense of physical score sheets. I think having those moving into purely electronic form. So there's a couple of things like, um, you know, Reagan's uh, 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 sheet tool, his stats tool. Um, that, that's one, you know, attack at it. There's been, um, I think Zach has either inherited and then modified, or maybe he created from scratch. I forget. Um, I'm really tired, so I'm having a hard time remembering. Uh, but Zach has uh, a new electronic score sheet. It's built on Google Sheets uh, that he's been uh, having people uh, demo and, and try out and, and kind of uh, see if they can uh, quality assurance control it and so forth. And I think we're at a point where pretty soon, for some definition of pretty soon, those electronic versions, will we are, we're going to coalesce around a handful of tools there and that will effectively deprecate, uh, you know, physical paper score sheets because you know if you, it, it's fairly easy to bring a tablet or a laptop or something to uh, a quiz meet if you're a scorekeeper, and you pull open some documents on the interwebs, you fill out some information, and you move on to the next sheet. Uh, that is tremendously that has tremendous advantages for a lot of reasons, right? You don't have to have coaches shuttle the sheets back to the officials or the stats room. A stats person is never running around trying to figure out where is score sheets, you know, wh where's the score sheet for quiz 17, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and if we're using something like a Google Sheets sort of interface, uh, coaches could have, or really anybody could have a read-only access to the score sheet in real time and actually see it being filled out. Uh, during the progress of the quiz. Now, I think, you know, having a projected scoreboard is better, you know, an in-room projected scoreboard is better than a Google Sheet, but in certain rooms, especially really tiny rooms, that's not practical. So having, you know, a, an electronic version of the score sheet available for people to view on their own devices really solves that problem. So I think that's on its way out for something better. And, and I think we're we're right at the threshold of where that's going to 
where that's going to happen. So a lot of this stuff, I mean, these these toolings, these targets are non-static. Like we we we've inherited things from the past. We implement new things. We hand off greater and better things into the future, and the folks in the future create even better stuff than we've done, right? And that's sort of the the natural progress of of how things work. Um, but of course, that's in digital print solutions. We still use physical equipment for things like benches, like seats and lights and so forth. And of course, can we pause for a second? Yeah. What do you have ideas? Um, going back a couple points, a story for you is I remember printing out perhaps the concordance that you generated or maybe a two word unique phrase list at the library at a nickel a page oh, and feeding ow. in probably $20 worth of change to get a year's worth of materials. So that is definitely a bygone time. Yeah. Would you agree with this statement that with the advent or ubiquity of electronic searchable material that a quiz master knowing the material at all is completely irrelevant? No, I don't think that's, I, I, I don't agree with that. So I think, I think, and well, maybe make, make sure I understand you. I think a quiz master needs to still have familiarity with the material. Now, they don't necessarily have to have all of the material memorized, but I think they absolutely need to have some sort of connection with the material. Uh, they need to have studied the material, uh, borderline memorized it, you know, being able to hear phrases. Because you know, here's the thing, like, like and, I'll, and I'll, I'll explain why I think this. If I'm listening to a quizzer and I have absolutely no connection with the material whatsoever, how do I know when to start pulling up the search tool and, and searching the, you know, a, an electronic concordance, right? Um, if I have, I, I sort of need that, I don't know, spidey sense to know, this sounds familiar. I think they're in a different context. I'm going to start searching to, to know for sure, right? So essentially the concordance is the, and the reference materials are the knowing for sure kind of stuff, right? It's similar to, uh, you would still need to, even if you memorize the material, you would need to know which words were unique and you'd have to have those, you know, absolutely for sure in the reference material that you were using. And the idea is you would, you would refer to the reference material to know for sure whether the quizzer got a, a unique word correct or incorrect, right? Um, or got it within the 30 seconds. Uh, similarly, I think concordances are useful if you have that spidey sense to know when you need to start searching and knowing what you need to search for. Does that make sense? Um, I, he I hear what you're saying, but I don't. I think almost no material knowledge is required now from a quizmaster. Uh, I think ideally a quizmaster has read through the material so that you read questions with the correct cadence because sometimes questions start um, mid-sentence or in a place where if you are not familiar with the material at all, you might read it with a certain kind of inflection. But if you know the material, you read it with the actual correct inflection, knowing the context. To me, that is just about the only place where a quiz master needs to know or, or is benefited by knowing the material. Because beyond that, unless a quiz master has just incredible knowledge like memorization of the material and is very confident in it they should not be trusting any of their memory for anything and should be looking up whatever a quizzer says and yeah, so at that's, that point it doesn't true. matter that's true but i mean the thing is though i mean even by having the the electronic concordance there you're not typing into the concordance on every question right sometimes quizzers say things and they'll say a couple of words that aren't 
directly on the card for say an interrogative and you just know that like okay that's not enough to put them out of context so there's there's no reason to use the concordance and certainly there is of course the safety not safety blanket the safety layer the safety system of challenges right so if the quiz master gets it wrong hopefully there's a there's a you know a, a, a captain there who will challenge and then of course the you know quiz master is is certainly highly prompted let's say in that context to then use the concordance and, and actually look things up and, and type things in but um i mean yeah you might be right i don't know i think there still is some value and it's hard to really articulate exactly what it is um I think I think if you were unfamiliar with the material as a quiz master and you had something like CBQZ, you could get by. I think I would still prefer quiz masters to be more familiar with the material than zero. Um, I'm well. I, I'm not saying it provides no value, but if a quiz master, if someone showed up and said, "I would love to quiz master. I used to quiz, but I don't know anything about this material." Like you're never saying no to that, right? That's true. Absolutely, yeah. Like if if I'm down a if if I'm down a quizmaster, like if I have a choice, if I have two, if I if I have one room that's vacant and I have two quizmasters and one knows the material and one doesn't and they're both reasonably equivalent, you know, quizmasters, I'm gonna pick the quizmaster who's familiar with the material. But if I'm down a quizmaster and somebody who has experienced quiz mastering but has zero you know hasn't been involved in quizzing for a year or two and hasn't studied the material at all hasn't even read the material let's say but they're like hey you know i've quiz mastered in the past if you give me you know cbqz I, i'll give it a try and maybe they've used cbqz in the past too so they're not like learning that from scratch you know in the meet then you're you're right absolutely i would i would tap them to to quiz master and i would have no I really no hesitation about putting them in the room. I would I would be evaluating actually I shouldn't say that. I would be evaluating their quality as a quiz master far above their material knowledge. Their material knowledge would be a, in a, a very small perhaps insignificant heuristic for the whole thing. Right. Because I mean, I think back to 2012 at Internationals, Aaron Haight was a quiz master and he knew the material incredibly. And so a quizzer would answer and Aaron without looking anything up up would say no, you said this, you are in chapter whatever, verse whatever. And, but the thing is, um, and he ruled very quickly, but that only worked because he was never wrong, right? <laughs> if he, was, right, if he right. was wrong even one of the times, then his material knowledge was then not worth it. He should have just been looking it up every time. And so to me, like 99% of Quizmasters will not have that level of memorization and so should just be looking it up, at which case someone who is 98% of Aaron's memory and someone who is 1% are basically on the same level. Interesting. I don't, I don't know that that's actually true. I don't have any data to be able to support my position. I feel like more material knowledge gives you greater understanding of when to use the concordance and what to search for in the concordance. Um, but you might be right and it would be interesting to hear from our listeners uh, if they think you're more right or I'm more right on this one. Well, I mean, I don't know if this will prove anything, but there are all kinds of quiz masters, right? Of differing expertises and abilities and all this. And I don't recall ever a time watching someone quiz master and thinking like, I wish they knew the material better, right? I, like, I, I, I remember saying like, I wish they knew the rule book better or... 
Um, I wish they read better. There might have been cases where I could tell they didn't look up something, and I, and I might be like, why didn't they look that up? But my but that's my question is like like they should have looked that up, not they should know the material better. Yeah, true, true. But I mean, I I agree that the certain qualities of quiz mastery are more important than material knowledge. I just think material knowledge isn't zero in sure, terms but of I, worth. I would say it's not zero, but I don't know if it's large enough to even be called out in the rule book with the langu- the wording that it's called out it with. Yeah, maybe. I mean, we have such an incredibly sub- you you might be right about that. I mean, we have such a subjective, you know, qualification on that as well, uh, even in the current rule book, but yeah. I mean, it's called out as should at the exact same level as read consistently, stopping consistently, and, and reading in a conversational manner. <laughs> and to yeah. me, one of those is like 80 times more important. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean, obviously the way it's, the way the material is spoken is vastly more important than the material knowledge because we have the concordance, right? Um, so, right. I mean, and that this may be something we are inheriting, right? Right. This could be something, you know, that language in the rule book that we've inherited from ages past when you know, having to flip through a physical concordance was, you know, very time consuming and and took a lot of focus and effort. And now it's, you know, incredibly easy and very uh, lightweight to be able to do it. And that kind of leads me into my thoughts on score sheets, which is, I think so much of how quizzing is or how quizzing has evolved or not evolved has been because of technological limitations. Um, So much of the wording in the rule book around like context or what's correct or things like that I think stem from the material not being electronic and just ease of like what is feasible for officials to search, right? Um, yeah. I, th- I think there's a reason that any, say, three-word unique phrase doesn't automatically take you out of context because that would have been impossible to search um, even 10 years ago, right? Uh, but then with score sheets, they are still paper, but I think it's paper, they're still paper Largely because we didn't want to require scorekeepers to have a laptop. Um, we've slowly gotten to the point, and maybe not even 100%, like I don't even know what the percentages are, but like we've slowly gotten to the point where it is fairly common for a quiz master to have a laptop and bring their own laptop, but I don't think we expect that for scorekeepers, which I think is the biggest reason that it is still paper. Because when you look at a meet like internationals, which is more important than a district meet, Internationals has had electronic score sheets for over five years now. And I think a large reason for that is it cuts down on the errors because a quizzer does stuff on a stage and then a human writes it down on paper, gives it to a different human who gives it to a different human, the statistician, who then puts it into a computer. There's just like a million steps of things that can, um, that an error can happen when if it's electronically done, then you just remove so much of that, especially all the calculations. Like one thing that I've started doing with PNW score sheets is the scorekeeper and the statistician are never calculating a quizzer's individual score in a quiz. They just tabulate number correct, number incorrect. Similarly, no one is ever calculating the number of team points. They just put in the team's raw points and their placement. Because every th- and most electronic score sheets, score sheets also tabulate the running team total. Because all of that can, without having errors ever be automatically calculated and i think slowly those things which are already handled by a computer um we're going to see more and more of that and then ultimately whoever enters someone will be selecting the quizzer who jumped and the outcome and that will be the last thing that a human does before stats are published 
and um, you just cut down on the room for error when you do it that way. And I think that's definitely where we're going. Can you see, I mean, kind of speculating with tools in the future, I mean, certainly with QuizSage, part of the idea of QuizSage, well, I mean, this wasn't the reason behind it, but it'll be one of the outcomes necessarily of the scope of the project, uh, is that effectively a room really is runnable by one person. I mean, essentially the quiz master is the answer judge, is the scorekeeper, and is also the statistician in, in so much as the, the data that's coming out of, of that particular, you know, quiz, right? The idea is you just, you just say that person jumped, they got it correct, incorrect, and then you move on, right? And so like you're, it's, it's very lightweight in terms of effort for the quiz master to do everything. Uh, the only sort of advantage to having an answer judge there is to have a second brain to be able to help you know, think through, uh, you know, maybe certain ambiguous uh, sort of situations or challenges or that sort of thing, right? So uh, I think there, there's, you know, I, I look at like internationals as sort of like our gold star standard, you know, for quizzing. At internationals, you would probably always want to have an answer judge, but the answer judge really needs to actually know the rules and the answer judge really needs to be engaged at, at basically the answer judge is a quiz master in every respect, except they're just not actually asking the questions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and calling out rulings and so forth. But otherwise the answer judge is effectively a quiz master, right? Um, and so like at that level, I can I can certainly see a huge value in having an answer judge along with a quiz master, but in just about every other level, it becomes unnecessary to have anybody at the table other than the quiz master, uh, even down to you know a basic prelim quiz in a B or C uh, division of a small district or something like that. You know. Uh, have a single quiz master. Maybe if you have an extra person who can be an answer judge, that that's great. So much the better, right? To improve the quality. But that's really all you need. Uh, and the bizarre thing is, you don't even really need a statistician anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you you do need a meet director in a sense of like somebody to set things up in the program about how you want the quizzes to be run in terms of like how the weights are going to work for that particular meet and, and what the weights of the ultimate, you know, results are going to be in terms of like year to date averages for teams or, or individuals or something like that, that, so that person needs to exist. And maybe that is the statistician, you know, in the future. Um, but at an actual meet, you don't, really need a statistician even i mean you need one quiz master per room and maybe an answer judge uh along with a quiz master for added you know awesomeness or accuracy but that's kind of it um so we're kind of moving into this world where um it's it's kind of an interesting world now take that a step further and say i don't think there's a lot of need for this but i can imagine a future where all of the questions are pre-recorded, right? So in other words, like as a quiz master, especially if I haven't had, you know, enough coffee or and or if I'm as tired as I am right now, uh, you know, I can ask a question and I can flub up on the words, I can mess up a, a reference, I can I can say, oh, it's question 17. No, actually it's question number four. I have no idea why I just said 17. You know, I have to start over. Uh, all of these sorts of things happen. So I can imagine a future where 
everything in the question is pre-recorded and literally the quiz master just said, looks to see that the stage is ready and hits the go button and that's it, right? And then, you know, a quizzer uses a hand buzzer because we're gonna use hand buzzers in the future. The quizzer uses a hand buzzer to, to indicate that they are uh, trying to uh, be called for the question. And the act of pressing the hand buzzer causes the, the speaking to immediately stop, right? There's no bell, there's no distraction or anything like that, but there is an immediate abrupt stopping of the reading of the material, which means there's zero bleed, right? And the quizzer get then is called by the, the quiz master, although we wouldn't even have to do that. You could literally have a sequence of lights and the quizzer can see, okay, yeah, I got the jump. You know, uh, seat number three on my team, that's my seat. I got the jump. So they don't even have to be called on by the quiz master. They simply rise, go to the mic, speak their answer. So in effect, the, the quiz master and the answer judge only ever have to hit the go button to start the, the playback and then adjudicate, like, like they have to do prompts if we're going to do prompts in the future. I think we mm -hmm. probably should, right? We're certainly going to have mm -hmm. to do prompts for, you know, uh, quotes and finishes, right? Um, so we do prompts in the future, so they have to provide those. Um, but well, then, I mean, prompt, prompts on reference questions are the most important. Sure, um, sure, sure. I think you don't need any prompts on finishes and quotes. Like, I want to get rid of Morn again. It's not necessary. That's true. That's a good point. You just basically... You, you remain silent until they either get it wrong or they are out of time or they're out of context. So, yeah, I, I could see that. I mean, and here's the thing. We could change references to make that the same. You you just have 30 seconds to either get it right uh, or get it wrong or be out of context, and that's it. You could. That I mean, that would drastically change the strategy of the type. But It, it would. It would. Um, and I'm not say saying I'm necessarily in favor of that either but it is an interesting thought exercise to say you could effectively turn the quizmaster's role into a button pusher and then and really it's just two answer judges is really all you're doing i mean you you in effect don't even have a quizmaster anymore you just basically have one or two answer judges where one of the answer judges you know hits the go button for each question right i don't think that's too crazy of an idea but i don't know what do you think I don't think it's that crazy of an idea um, because you're stripping away the things that don't need to be like human. Um, and I think I do think seeing a human read the question and the inflection is like really important. So I think it should be a video recording of the quiz master reading the question. Um, but beyond that, it can just be a recording that gets automatically stopped, right? Automatically started, automatically stopped. Yeah, totally. Um, I think in to in today's world, we're not there technologically, but I know that... So we have re uh, recording devices, right? In Of various kinds and used in various ways. But one thing that Zach is doing is using um, a recording service that also transcribes what it hears into text. Now, the tech is not there to be perfect, as we all know, using voice dictation, right? But I could see a world where the transcription is good enough that we can then get rid of the, did the quiz master hear it or not? The bar is, did it get transcribed? Ooh, interesting. Interesting. Right? Yeah, the, wor the worry, the super big worry that I have with that is if somebody has like a speech impediment or stutters right. or has an accent that, you know, a human can understand, but the algorithm can't, you know, stuff like that. That's a tech. So, I mean, 
obviously you can't put it into place unless it's going to work for all scenarios or you have to have overrides. But I think that's something that you and I have debated a lot is, you know, a Quizmaster can only rule on what they heard, but that doesn't mean that all Quizmasters are equal in their ability to hear, which means a different scale, right? Yeah, that's, again, um, not um, premeditated or, you know, bad in a you know premeditated way but it's still something we wish we could change if we could so i think that that would be a cool way um because we have also talked about oh you have to speak into the mic or be within this three foot box and all of it is just feels so hacky right right but if if you had um voice to text and it was just did it get transcribed well you know that would be very very objective and equally fair to all um absent what you said about like the pronunciation and that kind of thing um i had another thought about the robo oh um yeah getting obsolete in the session would be a great thing because i remember years at internationals when a quiz would finish and it was maybe 90 minutes to two and a half hours later the result would be written down on a physical sheet on the wall and it was just right. it, it seems ridiculous especially after say 10 or 11 prelims when you're your standing is very important. Um, and so a system where it's just immediately published, like that's awesome. That's way more optimal. But then, as I said, how so much of what we do is defined by past technological limitations. I think a big one is the general format of score sheets and of um, stats documents either individual or team, because it's all horizontally laid out in rows, right? Where the data right, yeah. is in columns, because that's just easier for a human to like just look on one row of one team's data and you know add it up or average it or, or what have you. But really, I mean, there's so much movement of the data that um, it, you're kind of like, the score sheets are designed for kind of ease of input by the scorekeeper, but then it makes it really hard on the statistician. And similarly, those stats documents with every quiz, you know, individual quizzes um, score listed out horizontally is also just um, like when I've been a statistician, the reason I overhauled our stats doc is I had no idea which quiz was entered for a given cell, right? I had to say like, oh, this is PNW1's second prelim. Let me go look at the schedule and see which... Um, was their second prelim. Oh, it was quiz seven in room four. Let me go look at that score sheet. Whereas entering the data differently that retains the the relationship between quiz seven and the score um, makes it way easier to enter, but also way easier to troubleshoot because I make errors. And so when a quizzer is like, hey, how does this quizzer have an average? They weren't even here this meet. <laughs> well, now I can just easily go in and find their name and find like, oh, I gave them data for this quiz, but not only did I give them data, did, should I have given it to another quizzer? Whereas previously that would have been, you know, a 15 minute task to track down. Now it's a one minute task. And so I think, but that's only because technologically we can format the data however we want and summarize it however we want. Right. Okay. Well, let's jump into equipment really fast. Um, most of this stuff I think we've talked about before, and then let's talk about software. Um, so, you know, when it comes to uh, seats, benches, lights, all of that kind of stuff, um, what makes one provider better or worse in terms of equipment from your perspective? I think reliability is the biggest one. So reliability both in how long does a, the product last, but also how how reasonable is support. Um, because 
especially with something like a console. When a console breaks, I think a manufacturer can be reasonably assured that it hasn't been treated terribly. Um, and so how easily they will fix or replace something like that, I think, um, would be a good quality of a manufacturer. I would not be surprised if manufacturers will not replace um, pads for, um, for free just because of um, their cables and who knows who is unwrapping and wrapping up these cables or tripping on them. Um, right. But I think I think reliability is the biggest one. Um, sure, price is next, but I, I don't like to set price expectations on um, equipment suppliers. I think we have hopes and dreams and wishes, um, but I think... Um, whatever gets charged gets charged, and then we have a choice to purchase it or or we don't. Um, and if we don't have a choice of whether to purchase it or not, that's not necessarily the manufacturer's problem, right? Right. Uh, so I, even if there's a scenario like that, and you feel like you're being price gouged, I I hesitate to say like, well, the manufacturer should do something different. I I can say I wish they would do something different. Um. So, but I think reliability is the biggest. Um. And then I think. You can tell intent pretty easily, you know, like especially for either benches or consoles. If the connectors are super weird, then it really feels like a lock-in play. But if they're things that are super obvious, like really ubiquitous connectors or cables, then you're like, well, they're just making a product, you know? Um, so I think reliability is number one. And then um, I don't know what the what what I would call this one. In my notes, I called it open source slash standards. Like, just pick the thing that's common when you're making your, your hardware. Yeah, I think for me, I think reliability is, is without question number one. I want to be able to have something that works at a meet uh, and without, without fail, right? Uh, now, how do you achieve higher reliability? It means you design simpler systems, not more complex systems. So, you know, especially with hardware interfaces and so forth, um, I think... You know, uh, we've talked in the past about, you know, uh, systems that are hardware based that require software, you know, custom software to be loaded on, say, a laptop for the, the system to work. And like that's needlessly overly complex right now. Having the option to connect to software, that's great, right? To, to achieve good reliability, you you basically need your system to be simple, easily, you know, connectable. Don't require, you know, software if you don't need software. You can provide a means to connect your hardware to software as an option. That's pretty cool. But requiring a connection to software is needlessly overly complex, which means uh, there's a higher probability that the system isn't going to be reliable, even if you did everything, you know, perfectly as a manufacturer, right? So designing for reliability, uh, building to high quality, that's, that's absolutely number one. And then number two, I think, is reasonable support, right? So if I'm at a quiz meet and we have an equipment failure, I do not expect to be able to call a, a 1-800 number and have 24-7, you know, mm -hmm. bench support, right? Like, like I don't, I don't expect that, right? Um, I don't even really expect to shoot off an email and have a response within, say, you know, 24 hours or anything like that, right? But generally speaking, like, you know, if I shoot off an email 
I kind of expect to get a response within a couple of days, you know, that kind of thing, or to get an out of office message that says, yeah, hey, I'm on vacation for, you know, such and such period of time. I'll be back on such and such date or something like that. Right. Like that, that to me is reasonable. And, you know, if I, if, when somebody's not on vacation, if they're generally responsive within say 24 to 48 hours, you know, by email, that's fine. Right. Um, really support is more the ongoing stuff after the initial connection. So like if I've, if I'm experiencing an equipment failure, I email for support, I get a response back. We try to troubleshoot back and forth. If the person on the other end that's providing support is emailing me back, you know, maybe once a day, once every 24 to 48 hours, as we're trying to go back and forth and figure, you know, something out to me, that seems reasonable. Uh, if, uh, you know, if it starts to get more cumbersome than that, then I'm going to start getting a little on the annoyed side. Right. And to your point, like, sure. Uh, if seats fail, I don't expect the manufacturer to replace those, that those get wear and tear. I get it. Right. But if it's a fairly new box and something with the box goes haywire, I would expect the manufacturer to, to sort of own the fact that, yeah, there was probably a manufacturing defect, uh, and then, you know, make the situation right. Right. So there's that. All right. So software, um, we have all kinds of stuff to talk about as software and probably not enough time to do it, but from your perspective, Scott, what do you consider to be, are there certain objective criteria for what makes software, certain kinds of software for quizzing tooling better objectively or worse objectively? And, and why do you think that? Um, so the first thing is integration is usually bad, right? <laughs> right. Um, if, Software needs a particular piece of hardware or vice versa to work. It's generally bad, um, meaning it's just another point that it could fail. Um, if it was guaranteed to work, it would be better, but it never works out like that. Um, I think another principle is if the software is going to be opinionated about anything, functionality or features or design or anything, it's, its focus should be very, very small. And if its focus is going to be larger, it should be as unopinionated as possible. And I think one good example, well, I don't know if this is a good example of this, but I kind of draw a distinction between data and the user interface, meaning the data should adhere to whatever standard or the simplest standard or the most common or whatever. And there are problems with standards, of course, but um, you shouldn't do anything terribly exotic at the data level. But then it, at in the user interface, if you just want to display the data differently than a different app does for either Quizzer Study or Quizmaster View or scorekeeping or statisticianing or anything like that, like, you know, that's that's fine. But the example that I was going to make is I like trying out different apps for note taking. But one feature that I've realized I have to have is if I have a bunch of notes all written in plain markdown. I need the ability to export it from your app and import it to another app. And I want whatever other app to be able to, to accept this very plain, common data format. And I think a similar thing would hold in quizzing, right? If um, you're going to design some exotic score sheet, you probably shouldn't have the way that the data's input be wildly different than everyone is going to be expecting. Or, you know, maybe you present stats in a cool way, but... Um, you should still accept the normal either quizzer with a score, or quizzer with a correct and incorrect kind of standard um, data being given to you. I don't really know any other good way, good examples to provide of this data level versus the the user interface level. 
so going back to your first point, I think I agree. Can you give me an example of, of say, software that requires hardware? Um, well, I, well, I guess the Acme pads. I don't know if they required um, Acme co- console to run. But, I mean, that was a big one was we bought Acme pads and the Acme console or USB interface and used the, the software for scorekeeping. Mm-hmm, um, right. And it just, like, if it worked, it would be wonderful, but it just didn't work. And we ran into all kinds of problems. Um, and it's just, it's better if the pieces are separate and the people can deploy them however they need. Um, yeah, what other things might be... Well, like, I mean, I, ca- I guess it goes back to ubiquity of connectors. Like you said, something's resilient if it is built simply. Well... There are benches out there, and there are pads out there, and there are consoles out there, and they're not all made by the same people, but they can, for the most part, be used pretty interchangeably. Sometimes you need an adapter cable in between, um, but that's about it, and then they just work, right? So it's not like, oh, this manufacturer makes benches and also makes consoles, and the two can only be used together. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's, you know, I make... You know, I make benches with this sort of connector, so you have to be able to receive this kind of connector. But beyond that, you can use whatever you want. And I think that that's a really healthy thing um, because the smaller pieces that people can mix and match will both make it cheaper for them if stuff breaks and they can just pull it from other rooms or a store. But also, if a certain manufacturer just gets really good at one piece, then people have the freedom to use that one piece. Yeah, makes sense. One idea I wanted to talk about a little bit here towards the end, this may be the last thing we have time to get to. I wanted to talk about the idea of creating maximum net ROI in whatever project, tooling project that you're going to undertake, right? So if you're going to create, um, you know, physical equipment, if you're going to create some digital solutions like a new kind of score sheet, um, a new way of showing reference material, uh, if you're going to create, you know, the new CBQZ so that I don't have to, you know, things like that, right? Like if you're, whatever it is that you're going to create, um, I want to sort of share, I want to encourage the idea of considering this idea of maximizing net ROI relative to other projects that you could do, right? So for example, uh, this is going to be an this is going to be a terrible example, but I'm really tired and it's probably the best thing I can think of. But imagine you decided to build a, a robot, an R2 unit that would listen to somebody quote. And whenever you said a unique word, a global unique word, it would make a little R2D2 beep sound, right? That way, as you're quoting, you would have this sort of audio sort of reminder of like, okay, that word you just said is extra important, you know, kind of stuff, right? Now, is there value above zero to this R2 unit, right? Well, okay, the value is above zero. It's not maybe a lot above zero, but there is some value there, right? And I think a lot of uh, sort of... uh, technology guys, myself included, can fall into the trap of thinking, hey, that would be a really cool project to do, right? I would love to build an R2 unit that beeped on every unique word. That seems kind of cool. And you look at it and you say, yeah, there would be a non-zero value. There would be some kind of positive value to the end product that I'm that I'm creating, right? Um, and I don't want to dissuade anybody if you feel 
you know, if there's some listener out there who is especially passionate about this idea of creating a beeping R2 unit, a unique word beeping R2 unit, I don't want to tell you not to do it, right? I'm just wanting to sort of caution you that maybe your skills uh, and your time in create that, that would be invested in the beeping R2 unit would actually be far better invested in creating, say, a replacement of physical jump equipment, right? Um, open sourcing a, a, an electronic schematic or something like that, right? Like there are other projects that would have tremendously more positive net ROI than the, R, the beeping R2 project, right? So I wanna kind of include that idea in the sort of the origin story of, of products that we create. Because I mean, we're starting to get an ecosystem now where there's quite a lot of people, uh, you know, good, you know, what, 10, 15, 20 people in the quizzing program who are actually creating solutions. And there's actually probably a lot more than even that group. A lot of people that we just haven't heard of yet who are working on various different solutions. And that's awesome, right? The more, uh, tech that we have, the more solutions we have, the more tooling that we have available, the better. It doesn't mean we have to use all of the tooling. Uh, it just means we have options to be able to make choices about the tooling. And all of that stuff is, is valuable above zero and contributes to quizzing. And so I want to encourage that. But I want to encourage folks who are kind of working down that line to kind of think of, is my project something I'm really passionate about, but it doesn't really have a lot of maximization of net ROI, or is it something that I'm passionate about and I can maximize the net ROI uh, based on the, you know, what I see going on in quizzing them, right? I think those sort of ideas need to come into play uh, a little bit more uh, going forward, especially as we are creating ever increasing amounts of tech uh, for uh, quizzing. Uh, so Scott, what do you think about that? I mean, I think that's the ideal, but also I think you're only going to get quality products if someone cares about making them. And so if someone is very passionate about making something that just happens to be a, not a very large net ROI, um, I think you still want to encourage them to keep making the things they are passionate about. And, you know, they might become passionate about something that has a larger net ROI. But I don't think you can just say, like, consider what would be the most valuable to the, to the general quizzing community and then get more quality, um, you know, tools because of it. I don't know. Like, no, I totally agree. Passion has to play uh, interest, right? It doesn't have to be passion, but I mean, passion is sort of interest at an extreme, right? But interest absolutely has to play a, a major role because you're, if not the primary role, because you're volunteering your time to invest in this thing that you're going to create. Uh, you know, you definitely need to be at, at minimum interested in doing it, right? And the more interested you can be and, and bordering into passion, uh, the better it's going to be in terms of having you stick with it to the end and then maintain it after you're done. Because the last thing you want to do is produce something and then say, okay, great, I'm done. I'm, I'm literally not going to even like support my users who are using it anymore. I'm just going to kind of throw it out there into the commons and let people do whatever they want with it. And I'm off to, you know, some other, you know, some other shore. Right. So, I mean, passion, uh, interest and passion are what, kind of keep the creators connected with their creation uh, and have them continue to provide, you know, ongoing support, which is, you know, I think very useful for quizzing. 
Right. But I think it is helpful if people have that, you know, without sacrificing a whole lot of passion, have that eye towards what would be most helpful. Right. Because back a while ago when there was a really bad hardware product, but it was the only option, you know, I, I was exploring ways like, is there a way that we could publish a schematic of how to make it yourself, which um, would do one of a couple things. It would either just incentivize the manufacturer to improve their own product. It would make it so people could make their own if they wanted to. Or if the manufacturer um, had had a copyright or a patent of any kind, they would have to prove it. <laughs> right? right. And so mm-hmm. like, um, but I just didn't have enough passion to keep pushing to get to a conclusion that would be useful for the whole of quizzing. Um, but if people have ideas of like, oh, there's this thing that we rely on that could be way better for reasons A, B, or C, um, I mean, that could be really useful. That's why like, I love when I hear these ideas of can we design benches that use these like folding benches that you just get at Home Depot, you know, for it would be like 60 bucks a, um, a team. Um, and, you know, you can and then wire them up and then you have benches for one-fifth of the cost and they're easier to transport and they're maybe maybe yeah not 100 percent as good but close enough and so I, I like those ideas that are really focused on um replaceability and lower cost because i think that that matters in a lot of areas and that's why you know zach is trying to rewrite our um the score sh- electronic score sheet that's used at internationals it it used to be in um, open office so that people didn't have to pay for Microsoft Office. But Zach is taking that a step further and putting it in Google Sheets so that you don't have to have a, a I don't know if open office can be on other operating systems besides Windows, but I think it might be Windows only. So it's like, oh, every scorekeeper has to download this onto a Windows machine and install it and make sure that it's running. And um, it is a even lower hurdle to put it in Google Sheets, right? So that's a really good principle to be moving towards. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, OpenOffice can go anywhere. I think it's really more, you know, there's nothing to install except a browser, which you probably already have. Um, And then above that, there's no transport of the data, right? So, like, you don't have to save a file and then somehow electronically or physically move that file to some other location. It's just you open up a page in a browser, you type some stuff in, you close the page and you're done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, so it's like that, that that's way easier. And it also scales like literally any modern laptop will work just fine. And so it, it, it yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a, a strong improvement. Now, last point, and we're a little over time here, but I, I do want to throw this in. I want to speak a little bit to the idea of competition. So I haven't heard this in a while, which I think is a really good thing because I think it's dumb. Uh, but I have heard in the past the idea of there shouldn't be competition in quiz tooling. So in other words, like, you know, if somebody creates a concordance and then somebody else creates a better concordance, I mean, there is, I, there's no such thing as better because, I mean, a concordance is a concordance, right? I mean, I guess maybe you used a better font or better printing quality or something. I don't know. Um, but or I don't know, but actually, well, better could be price as well, right? So let's say there's a concordance that costs $20, and then there's a, co- a concordance that costs $0. Uh, you know, the $0 is better. There have been situations in the past where where folks have said, but that's competition and that is bad, uh, and we should not have competition in quiz tooling. 
I think this whole idea of not competing is extremely dumb. I have a lot of quiz tooling things that I've created, uh, you know, like CBQZ is one of them. If somebody came out uh, right now and had a competing product to CBQZ, that would be awesome. Like if, if somebody created a CBQZ that was better than CBQZ, like, yay. <laughs> Right. Like that benefits quizzing. Um, I don't understand the idea of somebody saying like, well, CBQZ exists, so I'm not going to create something like that. Right. Um, and similarly, like, you know, Zach is creating a, a, a Google Sheets uh, score sheet. If somebody comes up and says, you know what, I'm going to create a Google Sheets score sheet that's even better. Right then yay, go do it, right? I, I guarantee you, Zach would praise this effort, right? He would not be like, well, I created one, you shouldn't compete with mine. Like, no, like he would want the best thing for quizzing, right? We all want the best thing for quizzing. Uh, so the whole idea of, of avoiding competing ideas is silly. Uh, if you have an idea, if you, if you feel passionate about your idea, go give it a try, right? Um, I only just caution that maybe if you have multiple ideas, try to go after something that has stronger value added to quizzing rather than lower value adding uh, to quizzing. But whatever your passion is, go do it because at worst you're going to have fun and it won't get used, but you'll have fun and it, it'll contribute to the tech umbrella of, well, not umbrella, the smorgasbord of quizzing tooling that we have available. And at best, or not even at best, but but more likely, the product that you're creating, the, the thing that you're doing, the service you're providing, will actually have a healthy, positive, long-term impact on quizzing. So the more that we can do this, uh, the better. And besides, you know, if, if somebody starts competing with me on CBQZ, that would be great because it might kick me into gear to try to make CBQZ better, right? Right. So like some some friendly coopetition i think is a really healthy thing uh for quizzing i do too and i i mean i think you could conjure up a scenario that wouldn't be a good idea um or a particularly ethical one you know maybe cozy up to a hardware or software maker and act friendly to learn how they do everything with the intent of making something that is just barely better and then you can take whatever revenue and or profit they have um yeah but i think um, if you are trying to make a better thing or a cheap or something that is the same level of quality but cheaper, like that is just going to benefit a large number of people in quizzing. And um, I mean, if there are negative aspects on the person who lost business, then they should have made a better thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> absolutely. As long as you're being, you know, honest and above board about the work that you do, then uh, I don't see any reason that that the competition would be a, a bad thing. Um, and I, I do think, you know, going back to what I said, you know, if there is a single manufacturer for something and they're kind of charging way more than they should for what they're producing, well, I try to not be upset at them about that because it's not their fault that there's not other um, uh, makers of whatever they're making, right? Um, maybe that's me being too nice about it. But I think in general, like it's those scenarios that invite someone like there's opportunity here for you to make a product that's better or cheaper or both. Um, and I think that's that's just a really good signal, you know. So if you look around in quizzing and you're like, oh, this product is awful. I wish something was better. I mean, you might not be the only one that thinks that. Um, and yeah, it's good information to everyone. And um, in any kind of market, if someone makes a better product, you benefit a large number of people. Indeed. 
And on that bombshell, we should close. Uh, as always, if you want to communicate with us, we would love to hear from you on email. You can email us at iq at cbqz.org. If you disagree with anything that we have said on this episode or any past episode, we are especially interested in hearing from you. Uh, and we uh, we tend to take disagreeing emails and bring put them to the top of the list in terms of stuff that we feature on the show. So if uh, you have any sort of comments or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. IQ at cbqz.org for email. On Twitter, we are at Inside Quizzing, and you can also chat with us in kind of almost near real time on Slack. In the uh, Bible Quizzing Slack, uh, the channel is inside dash uh quizzing and with that i will say thank you all for listening and thank you scott thank you everyone 